Lower Dorks. I'm Aaron, and with me as always is Stavros. Tonight we're talking about the aesthetics and design of Lower Decks, specifically as it pertains to the design of the Starship Cerritos. Joining us for this conversation is Thomas Maroney, lead Starship designer for Star Trek Online, Starship designer extraordinaire, and secret love child of Kalpana Chalwa, and a time-displaced James T. Kirk. Thanks for joining us, Thomas, and I hope you'll join us in pouring a drink. Avros, what is that drink? Well, first of all, I had no idea that was in your background, Thomas. Uh, it's a surprise to me, too. <laughs> we'll have to get the temporal police involved. Um, but anyway, today we are drinking Southern Comfort and Lime Juice. And you know, Aaron, you've got us on this whiskey train. I might have to get off at the next stop, but I will I will say that it is kind of limey and uh, and more delicious than I expected. You get off on the next stop, you're really going to miss out. The next stop is Flavortown. <laughs> oh, man. Yes, this is definitely more of a sipping drink than our last foray into the uh, whiskey realm. It is a very sour drink. Normally, I wouldn't recommend Southern Comfort. However, it makes a fantastic mixer. Sour is right. I have to agree there. What do you What do you think of the drink, Thomas? It's growing on me. It's a little. Uh, it, it is very sour. I also didn't. I probably should have looked up like exactly like what the ratio was uh, and everything. And um, I also don't really have an easy way to crush ice, so. I just put ice cubes in too. So. I crushed them at first per Aaron's recommendation, but uh-huh. um, I I finally I, I love giant ice cubes, mm. and I once my ice started melting, I just threw in the giant ice cubes. Yeah. So it's similar effect. I find that the drink uh, has a little bit too much bite for what I prefer. Mm. Uh, so the crushed ice helps smooth it out. I mean, really, it's just watering it yeah. down. But that makes sense. Nothing wrong with that. Well, gee, well, let's talk about the Cerritos then. The the main thing I want to ask for you guys, and you know, Aaron, we talked about this a bit in our uh, introductory episode. You know, I mentioned there, I kind of found the design or the aesthetic kind of uh, maybe goofy or lulzy at the start. But I have to say, now after the um, first season has aired and I watched it a bit, I'm kind of grown on me. Kind of, and I'm kind of surprised by that. I still look at it and it still looks kind of goofy, but that kind of fits the personality of the ship for the show. Much in the same way, a bad case of warts will grow on you. <laughs> yes, exactly like a bad case of warts. <laughs> what do you? What about you guys? Do you guys like? The, are you into the aesthetics of the ship? Um, I think. I think. Um, it's it's interesting. I as soon as I saw it, I mean, it it was very clear to me what they were trying to do. Right? They they wanted to make something that you would not confuse for the hero ship of any other star trek show sure. right it, it it they wanted it to be a little and this might be a strong word but dumpy <laughs> um yeah. and and designing a, a star trek ship is is its own special challenge because you're you really have to think in terms of silhouette first you have to be able to create a shape that if you take away strip away all the surface details and make it really small and squint at it you can still say that's the enterprise or that's the defiant or that's the voyager or the discovery or now the cerritos right and so i think that i think that drove some of the decisions that make the ship even more odd looking it does sort of stand on its own as as something separate from the other ships in star trek and certainly the other hero ships in star trek so it certainly grew on me i mean i think the the moment i really came to love the ship is when they did that um towards the end of the series uh the season one they did the, the um, reference yeah the You're tmp right? call call back yeah <laughs> and like what was great about that is like it was like supposed to be a joke about how long it was going but i was like yeah this is awesome i loved it <laughs> Well, and I frequently have talked about the motion picture is my favorite of these Star Trek films. Oh, really? Don't crucify me for that. <laughs> but, you know, it, it has a very uh, epic feel to it, more so than I think the other movies do. And I, I really love those beautiful, long tracking yeah. shots. And I, I love that callback. Just just a fantastic scene. But going back to the, the overall aesthetic, I think you hit on one, one perfect example of, I, I don't like the design. It's ugly. It's dumpy. But I can, I think I can also acknowledge that it is a good design. All design serves a purpose, and you have a certain necessity within Star Trek. There has been a basically an aesthetic bible laid out since early in Star Trek's history about how Federation ships look. It's always fun to see how the designers play with that. The first real good example you see of that is in the Defiant. You know, you have to have the two nacelles. They have to have 50% line of sight on each other. You have to have your deflector. And you have to have buzzard collectors looking forward. And you look at the Defiant, 
And from certain angles, you're like, it doesn't meet those design rules. Mm. Then you look at it from other angles and you dig into like the layout and you realize that, oh, it does. It's got a cutout under section specifically to meet 50% rule. The nacelles hang down a little bit from the body. It's also doing something where it's trying to visually tell you that this is different than other ships. It's leaner, it's meaner, it's tighter, it's more compact. With the Cerritos as well, where they kind of communicate in a visual language, like Thomas said, this isn't the hero ship you're used to. Would you say the defining factor then that you're talking about is dumpiness? (laughs) (laughs) I just put that out there. Much like myself... Cerritos <laughs> defines itself by its dumpiness. Well, I think I think the the way the Cerritos does that is it gives you proportions that aren't aesthetically elegant, right? The enterprises over the years all have different takes on what these proportions should be, right? The the original series Enterprise had very specific proportions and the Enterprise D came along and totally blew that out of the water. Um right. But there was still some relation relationship between like the nacelles and the engineering hull and the uh, and the saucer. And so what the Cerritos does is it has a really bulky saucer, right? That's where most of the mass is on the ship. And if I were if I if somebody said, okay, do a you know TNG style Miranda, which essentially is what the Cerritos is, if they told me to do that, then I would take the Miranda. The Miranda proportions are already solid; they they're good. Mm-hmm. It's a good looking ship, and so I would. Take them, you know, make a TNG style galaxy ish style saucer like the Cerritos has. And then I would take the, I'd probably use the same strut proportions of the Miranda and then, you know, put some galaxy nacelles on, making maybe they're still long like the Cerritos has. But by extending those nacelles down, the Cerritos looks lanky, right? right. It, it's, it's a little awkward and tall, taller than you would expect given the precedent that we have from other Star Trek ships that are in the same arrangement like the Miranda and the Nebula. Interesting you bring that up because, I mean, as far as where the where the California class fits in the the evolution of uh, the overall ship design, it's strange because the show chronologi- you know, canonically, chronologically takes place after Nemesis. So this is after the introduction of, um, of you know, the Sovereign class and 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 uh, Norway and right. Sabre and all those kinds of stuff. Certain aesthetic you can see there, right? But the but it seems like the a lot of the design cues are pulled out of right. like TNG era. So the saucer is like galaxy-ish um, and, you know, um, the deflector the seems galaxy-ish. So it's kind of I think I don't know if they really mentioned in the show when the California class is actually rolled out, but they do say mm-hmm. that there are some new ones. Yeah. But it's even if even if it is new, like is this ship kind of more? I mean, canonically and you know production designy, is it more? Was it like do you guys feel like it was maybe developed during TNG era? And you know, even if they're making new ones, it's it's just. You know, not top of the line stuff. It feels to me that a lot of the design aesthetic, like you mentioned, it, it pulls a lot from the TNG era ships. Uh, it feels to me like the design aesthetic they're going through is like a transitional phase. A big element of the uh, Galaxy class is that at the start of the series, it's a fairly new ship. But that thing had like a decade long development cycle. We never really see how common that is, mm. you know. Uh, we never really know how long ships take to develop and how long they're normally produced. It's really hard to say, because like like you mentioned, they are still making new ones during the series. We get the fantastic scene of the uh, captain of the Cerritos' sister ship being angry that somebody has removed oh, his yeah. screen plastic. So yeah. good. I, I believe uh, <laughs> there was an interview that Mike McMahon did with, um, I think it was Trek Yards, um, uh, and he talks about how it was sort of, it seemed like it was intentional. They did not want it to be contemporary of the Sovereign class. They wanted to push it back, right, further back in the timeline to, you know, sort of maybe like slightly post-Galaxy or contemporary to the Galaxy class so that by the time we get to twenty. 381 or wherever lower decks takes place it's been a workhorse right it has miles on it um, right. it's not here's <laughs> the mileage <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's it i love and I, I honestly i love it because we and all, and all the shows uh, tng and voyager specifically where they're rolling out with brand new ships and it's top of the line stuff i love that the fact that they, there can be a new ship but then it's still you know as aaron so eloquently put it dumpy <laughs> it's it's just not the top of the line 
uh, this is not the top of the line ship. It's not. It's not the top end tech. Even if it's new, it's not the best stuff. And I think again, it fits the fits the uh, personality of the show. It's something uh, honestly. One of the things I love about lower decks. You know, I, I read I read a little bit of military science fiction, and that got me interested in actual a little bit of actual military science and history. And so, one of the things a lot of people don't really think about when they you know imagine spacefaring navies and space wars and things like that is how much of how much of a problem logistics is and how much of your tax dollars go, you know, keep our ships, um, yeah, supply lines, right? Keep the sailors yeah. fed. Yeah. Supply lines and things. Totally. And so seeing the Cerritos and what they do on the Cerritos in lower decks is really cool to me. Cause it's like, okay, it's sort of like lifting the curtain back on like, what is Starfleet's logistics operation like? And what are the ships that, you know, what are the tankers like right. and the, you know, repair ships and tenders and all that stuff. It's like a crucial part of, of war and operating a giant space Navy. And so I know that's not really the angle that that's not really what the show is about, but it's, it's cool that they're like kind of giving us glimpse into that, that aspect of Star Trek. They they must exist, right? Right. (laughs) We've just never seen them because it's, I would think it, you know, it would be not that exciting. Building on that, the whole logistics and uh, the background stuff that never really pops up in sci-fi. It does every once in a while. I remember a scene where there's like two maintenance guys in Babylon yeah. 5 who are, you know, they <laughs> their, their whole job is to run this machine over the surfaces of the station. And none of them have any idea what it is. <laughs> that, that sort of thing pops up um, in uh, Andromeda. It was a common theme of them trying to keep the ship working with a minimal crew. I really like that they do delve into that because you never really see the routine maintenance in Star Trek. I think a part of that is they're probably at a level of super tech where stuff just doesn't wear out as much. It doesn't require as much maintenance. Mm, And they actually even kind of hint at that where they talk about when they are Tendi and Rutherford are being transferred to the uh, Vancouver. Right. And they realize it's really boring. They they <laughs> like, you know, having all these challenges maintenance wise mm-hmm. and you know, they talk about the Cerritos not being the top of the line ship and not being the newest ship. And so it requires more maintenance. And that, that to me was just a real fantastic look into the whole background universe of Star Trek. And it's really fascinating to kind of wonder about that. Because that's the truth of any type of machine. The longer it's in service, the more maintenance it requires. So how does that translate to these, you know, super tech starships? Yeah, good point. They don't. You got to you gotta wonder: Do they all have the discovery little maintenance maintenance spots that do all the hard work? You, you haven't really seen nope. them in the show. <laughs> uh, you know, Riker says ships clean up after themselves. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I've seen I've seen Rutherford in a lot of tubes. <laughs> I feel like they they don't got they don't got those fancy maintenance spots. I do kind of wonder how much of that, though, is just like routine checks where they're constantly just making sure everything's in tip top shape. Because <laughs> even though it's unlikely that something's broken down, it's entirely possible. Totally. Yeah. You don't want to find <laughs> out when you're uh, at the end of a. Disruptor. Probably not. Let's talk more details. Um, I want to talk about the MSD, the Master Systems Display. Um, and this is something that the internet loves. Uh, I'm sure, Thomas, you've made a few in your time, I think, right? Uh, yeah, I've worked worked on some. Um, I think I ended up not having time to do it. I, I have a good friend, Tim Davies, who did a lot of uh, MSDs for us at, at uh, Cryptic and Perfect World. It's always fun to take a look in, at those and put them in the game. Yeah, totally. Um, but I know they, they pretty explicitly show an MSD from uh, the Cerritos in one of the early episodes. And I'm pretty sure that there have been some fan-made ones online. Uh, but it's it's pretty neat to see one so early. Um, <laughs> but it's also kind of fun because people on the internet love to nitpick stuff mm-hmm. like this. Um, and one of the things that people that one of the things that's got the internet bent out of shape is uh, they don't like uh, the fact that en- the uh, engineering is in the pod and you have to take the turbo lift down the struts and along the nacelle tubes to get to the. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you really want to call it a drive section. It's basically just a mm. pod in between the two nacelles. I don't know. Do you guys have feedback on that? Do you, do you guys care about this two, you know, turbo lift shafts running at a, at a slant, you know, how can you do that with a turbo lift? Well, I mean, so uh, I think there've been a couple of interviews where Mike McMahon has talked about this and um, I got the, I don't remember what he said verbatim, but I got an impression that they thought about it quite a bit. And, and the general idea is that the, the Cerritos is, um, and you see the warp core, right? It's a giant warp core. Even it's like That's much huge. larger Enterprise D's warp core. And so 
uh, I think he said that, you know, the Cerritos actually generates way, way more power than it needs. And that's because it's meant to go, you know, help establish other colonies or get, you know, jumpstart uh, star bases and all crazy sorts of stuff that they need tremendous amounts of power to do. And so if you have a warp core like that, then presumably it's always running hot. It's always it's going to have a require more servicing. It might require to even be swapped out. Um, so you have it in an isolated area that you can just like like maybe that whole pod can be just completely detached and replaced, you know, in a starbase. And that's why it's a completely separate section of the ship. And you know, it, and it's good to do that if you have a scenario where. You know, with the Enterprise D, if you wanted to do that, then the whole, you know, essentially you're like grounding the whole ship for weeks or months or however long it takes to, to refit the end, you know, the drive section. Like that is the ship, right? So if you have the scenario where most of the ship is far away from the warp core, and then you can get this engineering pod that has the uh, warp core and the deflector uh, and just replace that bit, you you have that bit ready. So that's another thing that, that's really interesting about the way modern warships are built is they're actually modular in the sense that the, you know, an aircraft carrier, uh, they call the, the tower um, on the, the, so there's a flight deck, right, where the planes take off right. and land. And then they call the, the tower on the side the island. And um, it's one of the names for it anyway. And so, like, the island is actually just built somewhere away from the ship. And then they'll, and, and maybe it's built in pieces or maybe it's built as one giant thing, depending. But they build it and then they, you know, take the parts, pack them up, ship them to the shipyard where the ship is being put together. And then they'll drop, <laughs> drop the island onto the ship when it's ready, you know? So that's, so like how the Cerrito is, is constructed with the, the, the warp core being where it is in that pod makes a lot of sense. Like, oh, okay. So if, if there are a lot of uh, California class ships all over the Starfleet doing all these jobs that need to be doing and supporting logistics of the Federation, then it makes sense that, yeah, like every Starbase might have just, oh, we're, we're sitting on, you know, <laughs> five engineering yeah, five sections pods. for the California class yeah. <laughs> ships. Yeah. And, and it's like, if the Cerritos gets damaged, they can just like, oh, we got to divert to Starbase 72 and, and swap out our pod. So I think that's an interesting interesting justification for having it being such a modular kind of design. Interesting. So Aaron, what is your issue with it then? You 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 don't want to have to take a turbo lift to engineering? No, it's just the uh, <laughs> logics of day-to-day life on board the ship. Right. I don't really actually have a problem with that modularity concept. Uh, I remember uh, TNG when it first aired and the disconnecting of the saucer section. It was just such a cool idea, and it made so much sense. But then there's also that truth, you know, that, oh, I mean, if you can build modularly like this, you know, why can't you create saucers that are specialized for the being the basis for a deep space station or being specialized for being a battle section, you know? And I think the Cerritos, I mean, if that's the logic behind it, it kind of makes sense. It's still such a long journey. <laughs> like, you couldn't have just attached it to a neck or something? <laughs> you I mean, want to see a neck? It needs a neck? <laughs> well, I mean, just, like, move it slightly closer and have a neck on there. Come on. Don't make me go all the way to the edge of the saucer, all the way down, through the engines. At least we know, for a lot of people on the internet are like, you can't go through the engines. But, I mean, we've seen the inside of an SL tube. Right. You know, yeah. we know but that You totally can. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> like it's fine and everyone takes turbo lifts any everywhere anyway yeah. maybe maybe what we need is someone in the show to be like you know on the bridge and then they have to go to engineering and they're like damn it this is gonna take like a year to get there <laughs> just some kind of acknowledgement well yeah the the end this so the windows on the cerritos are actually not really great like not really scaled well they don't actually represent the Cerritos, uh, my understanding, is actually a very small ship. Like, it is only slightly bigger than a Miranda. You know, it's like 330 meters long or something. What's um, what's a what's, a, what's a galaxy for comparison? 600 642, okay. I think. Yeah, it's pretty small, um, right? Yeah, so pretty small. So, like, you know, in terms of, like, getting places, like, the turbo lift time, the turbo lift distance might not actually be any longer than it takes Geordi to get from the bridge of the enterprise to engineering. That's true. Right? I could see um, that. 
So that just just because the ship is that small, um, so it's it's worth thinking about. But the the other thing I you know that you know you could nobody said this. I'm just sort of extrapolating. But you know I, I mean you might uh, one, another thing that a lot of science fiction like sort of pop sci-fi franchises don't really talk about is that heat management is actually a really big problem in space. Mm. Yeah, people think that space is cold and it is, but there is no medium by which to conduct heat through like blow you know just sort of uh, heat can transfer by radiation or convection or, mm. or, or conduction, right? And so there's none of this is happening in space. It's just staying where the heat has been generated. So if you have that giant warp core, maybe they sort of need it to not be touching anything else because they have have to have a place to you know radiate some of that heat out into, yeah, the, big fear into is the universe really close. If it was attached to the main hole, it would be radiating right. into oh, the right. I can see that. Yeah. And I mean, the reality is, uh, I've always kind of gotten the impression that all of the turbo lifts are one giant network connected together in Star Trek. Right. So yeah, it be. Yeah. really doesn't matter where it's placed. Travel time is never going to be that long. Right. I just like to be contrary. <laughs> you know, you're not alone. There are a lot of people that, that have taken beef with that. But um, I do want to, God, there's so many things about the MSC. I'm just trying to organize all on my brain. But one other thing I want to point out is that unlike other new Trek, specifically, I want to say Star Trek Beyond and in Discovery, um, where they show the turbo lift in, like, this huge, in, inside this huge cavernous starship, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. But, you know, when you see the map of the ship in the MSD, and it is specifically not showing any of this strange cavernous stuff that you've seen in other new Trek. It's a, it's a pretty cognizant departure from, from that stuff. And, and it is referential to, I, I don't want to call it old Trek, classic Trek, nineties Trek. Yeah. I, I think Mike, something like that. Uh, the golden band. age of Trek. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, I mean, some people think that we're in the golden age Ooh, of yeah. Trek now, just because we're just as many or more shows, yeah. you know, Trek shows being actively worked on than, than there ever were. Hey, before. don't be a downer um, on my nostalgia. <laughs> <vendor>. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I certainly, I, lo- I look back on the, that era very fondly. So I, to me, it is the golden age of Trek too. Um, but you know, it's, that's because I think part of it, like, let's be real is nostalgia, right? right. That's what we grew up with. So that's what we love. And then the people who are growing up with this new stuff, this is what, you know, Discovery or Picard or Lower Decks is what Star Trek's going to be for them. And there's just no getting away from that, right? Like people, you know, people like millennials, uh, younger millennials or Generation Z or whatever, like Star Wars to them is the prequel. Right. And that's that's just how the, the yeah. cookie goes. If, if you don't go looking for it, you won't realize that there was a lot of pushback on TNG when it aired. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally, totally. Yeah. Everyone hates the new Star Trek. That's just how, just the universal yeah. conf, universal. That's how the fandom it. works. <laughs> and then in, in 2040, people will look back and be like, "Wow, like <laughs> it was such a great show." <laughs> I don't know. But but uh, to answer your question, I, I do think it's interesting. I mean, I, I think that there is conscious effort by the production team on Lower Decks um, in pretty much every way to make it feel inspired by that the era of trek that we grew up with right like that is that is a goal that is the goal for them whereas you know i think the goal for discovery and picard is more like let's redefine star trek in the era of prestige tv and we're going to rub our you know not to be pejorative (laughs) but we're going to rub our own stink (laughs) on it right so lower decks is you is weaponizing nostalgia in a way that picard and discovery don't they don't right. want to. That's not. That's innovate. not what they're trying to do. Yeah. Right. Right. But I do think uh, they did hire or are going to hire. Uh, McMahon said something about like bringing the Akutas in to help with the MSD and okay. and figure out a lot of the stats and stuff for the ship. So I hope I hope that means that might do like a lower decks tech manual at some Ooh, point. Yeah. That'd be super cool. That'd be sweet. Uh, by the way, that's pure speculation. Yeah. Nothing. I don't know about any of that. As per my <laughs> this is the fucking well, yeah. I think it's Best, an inevitability. Uh, yeah. Star Trek <laughs> and its tie-ins, uh, tie-in merchandising is an inevitability. We'll, we'll see something eventually. Yes, give it to me. There's money to be made. <laughs> no, though, going back to the big open spaces um, that you see in New Trek a lot, I am less averse to that concept except for the way they're always portrayed. And that is that Mm -hmm. open spaces kind of make sense if you're going for modularity. Mm -hmm. Now, you've got space to just drop in modules with specific scientific facilities or, you know, extra cargo for long-term missions. 
or you know anything you might need for resupplying or supporting any sort of uh, endeavor you're engaged in. The problem is, whenever they portray these things, they're all run through with all these, you know, turbo lift shafts and, right. you know, all these things running with this way and that way. And you're like, how are you going to fit anything in there? It's going to be blocked by all these rails and lines <laughs> and scaffolding. Yeah, not the problem in here in the show, at least. <laughs> it's it's interesting because I think there's that. I think it's just the sheer volume of the spaces they depict don't match with the size of the ship, even though the Discovery is a giant ship. Yes. Um, uh, it's much bigger than you'd expect for from a ship at the, of its era, but the but still even still the the size that that they show it it, it does not match at all with with how big the ship is in reality. It, it's it's definitely a TARDIS style. Yeah, uh, <laughs> space they, they use tech like that. You know, we don't know. Right. One of those one of those <laughs> moments where somebody was like, "I want to create this visual," right. and they did it, but there was no stopping to consider. <laughs> Oh, does this visual make sense in context? Right. Yeah, or or they did, and they just and whoever brought that up, you know, lost the argument because that, that certainly happens. <laughs> yeah, too. the director uh, was like, "Who cares?" Right. Rule of cool wins the day. <laughs> That's right. But I, I do want to say, uh, if if you guys are familiar with the Expanse, they're early on in the show. They actually wind right. up on a Martian ship, and and they're walking around inside, and the the, the ship is actually kind of like the discovery where it's actually pretty wide open on the inside and you see little modules connected together. Um, but it's a lot of empty space. Uh, and, and the inside is actually vacuum mm. and that, and the expanse is actually, you know, pretty highly praised for being a very scientifically accurate or, or, uh, adjacent, <laughs> <Close enough. laughs> uh, show as much, yeah. as much as you can get in a, you know, in a, in a, a modern popular sci-fi TV series. But, but the interesting thing about doing, building a ship like that, where a lot of it is empty is that essentially the empty space can be part of your armor because if there's nothing inside the ship to hit, then even if some, you know, if a phaser hits you and goes through the ship, it's not going to actually damage anything, right? Mm. There's nothing there. And if you, if your ship is just completely, like a cruise ship with layered decks and and it completely packed tight full of stuff then when a you know a phaser or a torpedo hits your ship and and starts blowing up things and things start vaporizing all that energy expands outward from whatever it hit then you're just going to suffer a lot more more damage right cuz it's just like the suddenly the ship uh, the matter inside your ship turns to energy and starts exploding causing damage and, and killing yeah. killing people right but otherwise like if it's if it hits a thing and it just kind of goes through your ship and only hits literally empty space vacuum then it doesn't matter that you got hit you didn't actually suffer any damage so um uh i think that is something that like you i think you could do that in a thoughtful way and show the innards of a ship like that in a thoughtful way if you really think about it and you know and want to like make a case for it through your dialogue or world building or whatever, but that's not really what they, what they did there. So, and it, it certainly runs contrary to what we see on lower decks with the Cerritos and, and TNG and Voyager and, and everything else. Yep. It is also a, a point that uh, the Cerritos is also a much smaller ship. Yep. Yeah. There's a lot of empty space in the Cerritos. It's between the engines and the saucer section. <laughs> right. <laughs> Okay, well, something else I wanted to point out, actually, regarding the MSD. So I don't know if you guys have seen this necessarily, but they published a like a set of blueprints for the Galaxy class. Do you guys have a copy of that? In the, it must have been in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, mm-hmm. the cool thing about it is they showed every single deck and every single component of the ship. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing you'll notice that they make a joke about in lower decks is the sheer volume of, quote, ops rooms. Right. <laughs> um, I think even Boimler makes makes this like, well, there's that ops and that ops and cetacean ops and this and that. And that's and it's something that I loved seeing in, in, in I mean, they don't call it out in the MSD that you see on the show, but the saucer, again, reminiscent of, of Galaxy Class Saucer, right? It's packed full of stuff and like you've gotta think that a lot of that stuff are just various ops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they call it out on the show mm-hmm. and it's great. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the, what we talked earlier about logistics and you know that it is interesting if you like you take a tour of like a World War Two museum ship, right? And uh I think if you go to the USS Missouri in Hawaii and um the Missouri there are certain areas that are made up to look like the way it looked in World War Two, right? When they accepted the Japanese surrender. 
but then you go below decks and it's actually the way it looked in the 80s when it was decommissioned because mm. it was actually retrofit to fire cruise missiles and all this stuff and actually has like beige computers and <laughs> amazing all that. yeah yeah <laughs> but but so much of so much of, of a warship and the aircraft carries the same way it's just about keeping the people alive right it's like here's the laundry room and here's the the galley and and the kitchen and and here's refuse and all that stuff so i mean the interesting thing about star trek is a lot of those kind of problems are have been solved by technology right so you don't you don't need a giant galley to feed people to create food for 6000 people because you know you've got replicators yeah, sure so and you don't necessarily need you know i don't know discovery makes it sound like they replicated the uniforms and then when your uniform got dirty i guess ds9 did this too it's like instead of washing clothes they would just like dematerialize them and yeah and make new ones so you know i think a lot of that stuff can go away in terms of when you're like planning out usage like space usage uh, of of a ship but it's also sort of like what kind of what kind of missions do these ships do what kind of things do they need to be prepared for like types of missions that we saw you know, most of the action in Star Trek actually happens sort of on the way somewhere or returning from somewhere. It's like, oh, the Enterprise is going to go catalog these gaseous anomalies or it's going to go drop off some supplies at this colony and then something happens, right? So there's a lot of stuff that we saw, you know, we never actually saw on TNG in terms of like, this is sort of the, the actual day-to-day op- right. operations <laughs> uh, of what these ships have to do. And so presumably there are... There is a lot of like specialized yeah. equipment they need to do that, and that's what a lot of the areas. I mean, the best one is obviously cetacean ops. Obviously, um, how many where, where the, the whales are? Uh, you know, on uh, the ship. Yeah, uh, I, I will be very disappointed if they actually show it to us. I just wanted to get referenced throughout like every what? series. That's crazy, it never it. gets shown. No, I, I demand we see cetacean ops. I, yeah. I, I can see the argument both ways. Like, I, I like that it's always just sort of like a wink and a nod. But at the same time, uh, Andy Probert, actually, for the early, the first version of Star Trek Online, it was being developed by Perpetual Entertainment. Andy, they hired Andy Probert to do concept art of sort of never-before-seen areas of a galaxy class, including Cetacean Ops. So if you go Google Cetacean Ops, you'll actually see some really cool art of what it looked like. Uh, he also did some drawings of like the computer core, extended like sick bay complex. There's a lot of cool stuff out there. It really fleshed out what it was like to live on a galaxy class starship. Pretty cool. Not to, to segue too hard here, but <laughs> talking about those things we've never seen, the expanded, you know, sick bay or medical uh, facilities. You see that a lot. And uh, one of the things that I know Stavros had mentioned was the uh, shuttle bay mm-hmm. um, and the difference of the design in lower decks than in comparison to say the TNG Voyager, even even the original TOS, how they were portrayed. They uh, they ripped the style right straight out mm-hmm. of Discovery, right? They got the um, the Delta with the ship name, and that's something that we've only pre- only previously seen in Discovery. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, there's some influence, I think, from the Kelvin movies, um, you know, so the sort of double decker uh, and then the sort of a frame structure. I think there's there's a lot of influence in the Kelvin movies on on the, the this new era of Star Trek. Yeah, might as well use it if it's good. Yeah, I think I mean, I think the thing that Lower Decks has going for it, right, and, and Discovery to an extent because of computer generated imagery is sort of it's a lot easier to build a crazy set with a giant scale than it was back in in the TNG era, right? Like, if you wanted to do that, you you needed a map painting, or um, I think the cargo bay, sometimes actually they built a miniature for it. Really? Yeah, and then, like, superimposed people on a green screen over footage of the miniature. So the sort of scale of sets you can build now has really ballooned uh, for these shows. And so you're getting, you know, the the main shuttle bay, the Enterprise-D, we only saw it, I think, once from the outside in cause and effect. And and otherwise, we have no idea what it looks like. There yeah. have been some fan creations and stuff. Have you seen Have you seen that one where they they like you can walk around the entire Enterprise mm-hmm. D and the size like they 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 recreated the size of the main shuttle bay from yeah. the Enterprise D and it's just like ginormous. Yeah, there are so many cool <laughs> details huge. that they did. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 mind boggling, and they can fit like a, like a, like two runabouts and all these shuttles and work bees yeah. and stuff in there. <laughs> yeah, and that's. That is like that feels right for a ship as big as the Galaxy class, and and is like a ship that has so many missions, and and that's honestly, and I know it's a budgetary thing, but that's honestly something that I think um, 
you know, you would if you're if you're going to a star system and you're surveying that star system, right? You like you would use a lot of shuttles and like sort of send them out and like, hey, this looks interesting. Let's go check it out with a shuttle. And this looks interesting, right? Yeah. And just sort of maximize how 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 much ground you can cover with all your little uh, embarked craft. Yeah, and you know what? You mentioned the appearance of the shuttle bay in TNG, and so it's shot at an angle to where you don't see the whole shuttle bay itself. You're seeing like a tiny portion of it, right? Yeah. And the same held up with other views of shuttle bays. I don't think it was really till did we see a decent shuttle bay in Nemesis, maybe? But you know, that's that's that whole thing. Just there wasn't that technology to really create these expansive sets. And you see concept art for the next generation, uh, the films, where it shows they intended these to be these big shuttle bays full of shuttles, full of cargo containers. But it's just something they couldn't portray on scene. I don't think it's so much uh, that there is a new style that's being done in New Trek. I think it's just that they have the opportunity to make these fantastic sweeping images. Yeah. I can see the internet is where people complain. And if they complain that, you know, hey, this, this style is from Discovery. Like, why are they using it? You know what? It's cool. I think they should use it. And that that's that. But I, what I do want to ask ask you guys about actually are the shuttlecraft, and you know since we're on the shuttle bay anyway, so they have these you know per memory alpha they're called Type Six A shuttlecraft, and they look very similar to the Type Six Eight uh, the Type Six and Eight shuttles from TNG and Voyager, although um, they look larger in lower decks. And they uh, you know I was looking at them earlier today um, in preparation for recording. I was like you know what they kind of look like uh, like like vans like like a like a like a like a vw like a huge vw Mm -hmm. van they're just huge and boxy Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, but do do you guys like those or i mean they could have easily just copied the type six shuttle i mean it's close enough to that timeline but no they decided to make these larger ones instead did you know did they have to do that are are these better do you like them i I do wonder what the impetus for the change was maybe just because they could they had to make them in animation anyway i'm not sure well they they have i think there you do see a type six in the background um like when they go to that one planet where boimler it's you know boimler and and um Oh God! They're taking Mariner. the Klingon ambassador. Mariner, <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, yes. The Mariner ambassador. and Boimler. Yeah. It's like I was like, where they do the thing, they have an adventure, but I'm like, oh, that's just the show. So like, that's not helpful. Um, they go places and have fun, right? But I think you do see a Type Six, like a legit Type Six, in the background on in that episode. Interesting. And so, I I think it, I think it definitely is. This is it's just like the uniforms, right? They, you know, everybody else in Starfleet, or at least the Titan, is wearing the first contact uniforms and then wherever the Cerritos goes, they're wearing the lower deck show (laughs) uniforms because this is our show and we want it to look like our show. Right. And I think the shuttles are the same thing where it's like, (laughs) you know what Thomas? I demand internal consistency for my star Trek. So, you know, it would be nice. (laughs) (laughs) So interesting thing that I was today days old when I learned type six and type eight shuttle are actually two different shuttles. Yeah. They look super similar. Yeah. They're incredibly similar. similar. Yeah, one was Voyager and one's TNG, and that, that might be the only difference. Oh, there's some, there's some so, stuff. Yeah, there, yeah, there's some minor differences. The Type Eight has a more. I mean, it's clearly the same prop, right? Like they <laughs> they just added the little uh, right, struts, right? They, they <laughs> added Sternbach style runabout style warp struts <laughs> and uh change in the cell to be more like it's it's the same thing. It's exactly what we just talked about, right? Like you notice, you look at the nacelles on the Type Eight. And you see the oh, those are the cells from the Voyager, um, right? And totally. so it's they they redesigned the shuttle to be like this is what Voyager shuttles look like because this is you know this is Voyager. And honestly, yeah. like it's uh, I think it's impressive that they decided to when the first contact uniforms came out that they decided to like okay, well we should have everybody on DS Nine start to wear these now. Like they could have just said eh, fuck it. <laughs> you know what the best part is. That's such a bizarre decision because DS9 uniforms started out differently than the TNG uniforms. Yeah, I mean, my my headcanon for that is always, and you can kind of, there is a, a tiny bit of um, uh, evidence to support this, but like in the in the you know in the U.S. military, you've got different uniforms for different stations, yeah. essentially, or levels of dress. 
right? So you have your your class, you might call them class Bs or duty uniforms, which are essentially like office business casual, right? So that's what like Navy guys would wear if they're assigned to like a base. Um, they're just doing clerical work and stuff. And so to me, that's always what the TNG uniforms were. And when Cisco is stationed on Earth before for the first contact uniforms roll out, he actually switches, switches uniforms. Yeah, right. He's no longer in the <clears throat> DS9 uniform. He's in the TNG uniform. And then the Class C uniform is the sort of grungy, like, a jumpsuit. You know, I'm going to get up in the guts of this machine and try to fix it. And so that's, to me, what the DS9 and Voyager uniforms are. And then and it's sort of like Picard was more formal because it was, you know, it was the flagship of the fleet. So he had yeah. people, you know, <laughs> up until t- uh, generations, I guess, he had people kind of... Uh, always had to look their dress dress a little nicer than they needed to in most of Starfleet. Yeah, and that that makes a certain level of sense. Well, you know what? We need to talk more about the ship because uh, you know this is a ship episode. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so going back to uh, we were talking about with all the different various ops and stuff on the um, you know the Boimler calls out and they're on the MSD. And, you know, we mentioned it before that the mission parameters of the Cerritos are is the second contact mission. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. And, you know, Aaron and I, we talked about this in, in our last episode, too, that the this is a, one of the first times we've seen a this level of specialization. But it, it seems to make sense for a ship like this. But on top of that, we, we have kind of two levels of specialization here, right? The second contact, which they call out explicitly, and then the ship... I don't know what you, what you. I really want to call it a subclass, but that's not right. It's it's like the Cerritos has the yellow stripe, which means it's engineering focused, right? Sure, and I think, yeah. Um, yeah, McMahon has, has talked about this in the past too. So like, and I think we've seen a blue striped ship, and you know, theoretically there are red stripe. Uh, there's a red stripe. We, yeah, we have seen a red, around here we too. We have seen a red stripe. Oh, has one appeared in the in the show somewhere? Yeah, yeah. It was the it was the one that blew up um, with the space oh, okay. jellyfish. I forget. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Cool. So, I mean, you know, this, how do, how do you guys reconcile this? Like, it, it's cool because it, it kind of like puts the Cerritos in its place as far as like what the actual mission parameters of the ship are. But, you know, it's put, shoving, shoving the uh, uniform colors on the ship, does that work? Do you guys, are you guys on board with that? I don't really have a problem with it. It's all aesthetics in the end. The question, you know, it's a chicken, the egg thing. It looks fine. And there's a certain level of logic that kind of, fits there uh if you have a distinctive hole marking that you can tell from extreme distances it's something that might be useful uh not strictly sure it's necessary but <laughs> looks good. I'm, I'm hoping that the you know if it's an engineering focus ship i hope some of the ops um, rooms in the saucer are like random engineering project ops like mm-hmm. i really want to you know if, if you're going to give it this engineering specialization i want to see it i want to i want to see more of these like random engineering labs and yeah stuff like for that. sure well we do see uh maintenance bay that the uh crew frequently hangs yes. out in where they're working on their uh, i don't know i'd almost call it an attack shuttle <laughs> <laughs> yes that's a great point like the repair bay is not something we were going to talk about this later but i mean that's i don't think there's precedent like, have we seen a full-on repair bay that's like how we've seen it depicted in the show? Is there has that happened before? I don't uh, think so. I don't, not not in the way they show. I mean, we've seen cargo bays and stuff, but we haven't seen sure. like you know this is essentially it's like a metal shop, right? And like that's something. <laughs> I mean, that is something they do have on aircraft carriers and and bigger warships that they have to you know they're they're at sea. And they do have constant resupply, but there are also situations where it's just sort of, oh, we just need to machine this part. Yeah. And so we've got, you know, we've just got all the tool power tools and and giant presses and things like that. And we're just going to make what we need to make so that we're not waiting for a delivery from, you know, from Nebraska or something. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and larger aircraft carriers. I mean, I guess I shouldn't say larger. All aircraft carriers are large. Uh, <laughs> But aircraft carriers, they're basically floating cities on the sea. Yeah. You know, they have every service imaginable. And I would imagine, you know, we were talking about this in our, our previous episode. The same things are going to exist, you know, on board these ships in Star Trek. Because of the technology, they're going to be much more accessible and much less necessary. You know, a replicator, especially like an industrial replicator, is going to be able to fill a wide variety of functions. The question then becomes, you know, you see these massive ships like the uh, Enterprise, the Galaxy class, 
And it has these this incredibly small crew complement. Then you scale down to smaller ships. Does the crew complement necessary to keep that ship running scale down as well? And I've said, I don't think it does. And I think that kind of shows in the Cerritos, which then kind of extends to this. They have a lot more, get a lot more use out of things like repair bays. Whereas the Enterprise is so massive, you know, they probably have large scale industrial replicators on board. Yeah, and there's something that, you know, replicators are definitely a black box in terms of, like, how do they work? Um, but they actually, uh, the um, Star Trek TNG technical manual written by Rick Sternbach and, and Michael Okuda, uh, or I guess the Okudas, Denise Okuda, I think has a credit on it, too. <laughs> they go into how replicators work, and, and one of the things that I think they sort of outline is that you can turn thing A into thing B, right, if you just have your gray goo replicator matter. Or, or solid waste or whatever trash, you know, like you can dematerialize it into energy and then rematerialize it into the pattern that you're making. But the further away thing A is from thing B, the, the exponentially like greater the energy requirement is. So like there's some, at least in, in that model of how the technology works, it's not like it's a good idea to just sort of replicate everything if you can find another way to do it, you know, like it might not be the most efficient path to getting what you need. And, and in that model, it might be more energy efficient to replicate individual parts exactly, and assemble yeah. them yeah. rather than replicating your, you know, Von Neumann machine. Right. That makes sense. I mean, it definitely, I mean, obviously the reason why they have it is to make, it makes sense for the show, right? Like they, they need a place for the, for the grunts to be doing their work. So I can totally understand them having this repair bay in there. I really want to see, I want to see more, uh, I mean, gosh, you know, again, we're talking, we're talking about, you know, seeing these, these uh, color coded ships in action. I do want to see more uh, applications of these, you know, like I, I was a little bit like confused at first. Cause I, you know, it's, it doesn't really jump the striping at least doesn't really jump out of me. Uh, it didn't really jump out of me at first, but, you know, seeing it, uh, you know, on the other California class ships and stuff like that. Um, it's cool. I want to see more. I want to see I want to see science ships doing science stuff, and the and the red stripe ships doing. I don't know what is it. What, what, what would a red sh- uh, stripe ship do? Genocide. Contact. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. It's a. Uh... They met these aliens. They're assholes. We're sending a red. <laughs> Second contact. Uh, we've been. <laughs> they're coming. Second contact is final contact. <laughs> <laughs> see now that's headcanon, and that's just how it's going to be now. I think. The concept of science ships exist in Star Trek, sure. Like we know, like the Grissom, right, was a science ship. Sure. So, like, and then, and then, sure, like support logistic ships, um, operation ships, like the Cerritos. That makes sense. I, I do think the the red stripe thing is a little. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that means. Um, I mean, red in in Starfleet in the 24th century uh, generally has this umbrella of command, and then. Yeah, well- in, what does in, that mean? And in Star Trek <laughs> Online, we we sort of talk about that as tactical, yeah, just because right. that's how we needed it to to tactical work in the, was, for the game. Yeah. yeah. So you know, I mean, if you wanted to separate operations from logistics in that way, and say that <laughs> red stripe ships are command in the sense that they are almost like AWACS style ships, right? Where they're keeping, you know, they're being, you know, they have big sensor, long range sensors and really a powerful communications arrays and they can sort of coordinate what's going on in the sector between, and they know sort of, this is where everybody is. This is what they're doing. And if they get orders from the Admiral, Hey, we need to reroute this ship to do this. Like it goes through that ship that's out there on the, uh, you know, in the field as it were. That actually kind of makes sense. I mean, basically a command and control ship right yeah exactly it acts as basically a mobile star base which... you need those if they're if they're like a, if the california uh, do they say explicitly that the california class is a second contact situation or is it just the cerritos that is the second i think contact? it's just the cerritos yeah. that, that okay. was my impression too okay yeah, I mean that case, it's it's just it's it's an interesting quirk of the show that not only yeah, like you said, Thomas, there are science ships and you know uh, tactical ships. I almost said escort because that's the STO term, but having the it's got to be modularity. Yeah, it's got to be like what we've been talking about. Like pop in a science pod <laughs> for the science ship, or 
I don't know. Oh, it's, it's, that's just what it's got to be. It's entirely possible. The ship is just designed with a large number of operations rooms that, you know, when they are preparing the ship for its mission, they customize those rooms to whatever the mission of that particular ship is. So the Cerritos might have extra lounges, might have extra cargo bays, you know, that sort of thing, because they're on a diplomatic mission. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, only a couple things left to talk about. Well, one, one thing I do want to mention, because it's explicitly shown in Lower Decks, but not in any other Star Trek show, <laughs> yet another area, is the uh, the residential hallways, the corridors with the bunks in them. Um, I think in every other Star Trek show, even Ensigns on TNG, I can think of I can think of of times where even Ensigns have had their own like huge rooms, but here they're kind of crammed into the uh, residential hallway rooms. Um, and Thomas, you probably have more experience than I do, but when I've toured like the the old submarines and stuff like that, this is what I thought of immediately mm. was just the mm. bunks that are strapped to the wall um, in the other way. You know, there's only one hallway in there and they've got to sleep somewhere. So it might be in the it's got to be in the hallways. Obviously, you know, this is it's this is supposed to be a show about people in the lower decks. So it, it fits yeah. that theme. But, you know, as far as the canon goes, is there precedent for this? I don't, uh, I don't in Star Trek so. six, you see on the um, the Enterprise A uh, and the Excelsior, too, I think uh, you see rooms okay. where people are bunking together. It's it's definitely a callback to yeah I mean a lot of people who you know served on the like served in the Navy in World War II right they had the really tight quarters and the reason is is because when you design warships like modern warships or warships going back I mean all the way back to like sailing you know uh, Horatio Hornblower all ships. A fictional one but Horatio you know tall ships essentially you built the warship and you're like okay here's where the guns go and then you just sort of like put the beds in the spaces around all the, the extra spots. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't really, I don't really know what like the Zumwalt class is the newest, one of the newest classes of warships uh, in the U S Navy. So I don't know what their, their bunking situation is. Um, I do know that, that automation on like the Zumwalt and the Ford class, the Ford classes are a new class of supercarrier. Yeah, that's the uh, Nimitz replacement, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I know automation is, is, or at least they require less crew than ships of similar tonnage have in the past. But but essentially, like, the, the point is that, like, those ships and, and sort of the inspiration of, of and, and what Star Trek VI was referring to and what Lower Decks is referring to is the idea that, like, the ship is just so crammed with all the stuff you need to make it go and all the supplies you need and, and all the, the machinery and everything that just sort of like people have cramped, you know, it's very, there's not much room left for your actual crew. I think by the time you get to the enterprise D and Voyager, it do, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense anymore because the ships are so big that there's no reason for anybody on the enterprise D for example, to not have their own room. Like even if it's just a, 400 square foot studio apartment essentially the ship only has a thousand people in it and and so much of the ship's internal volume is designed to be people space that you it's not that you know you don't have the same challenge that the ship designers did in the past i i feel like that should be true for the cerritos i i don't know i don't know if they've ever said how many people are on the crew if you say oh it's even if you say like it's the same crew complement as the enterprise d which is like over a thousand people but in a much smaller you know a ship that's half as long and and half as tall i still feel like you could have really tiny you know essentially like train car type cabins or something <laughs> so i think i think it's a concession to they want the drama right they want the scenes yeah. of everybody like giving each other crap you know when they go to bed and and um people walking around in yeah. towels i mean e- either that or <laughs> or they are making a point to say that the cerritos is full just so cram packed full of machinery and stuff and it just has so yeah. much you know requires so much cargo space to carry all these specialized tools around that really this is this is what we have to do but then they say that they have a preschool and a racquetball court and all this other just stuff nonsense. you know like <laughs> so like you know i feel like i feel like the crew would have voted to get rid of the racquetball court <laughs> if it meant that everybody had their own bunk yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah i don't know so they're actually a more in the timeline reference that is much closer to the era that Ordex is taking place in for bunks on board a ship mm-hmm. And that's the Defiant. Yeah, that's true. Oh, yes. Now, albeit they had bunk rooms rather than bunking in the hallway, right. but 
you can potentially then draw a parallel where the Defiant is a small specialized ship. Cerritos is a small specialized ship. Yeah. With squash courts. No, you, you say that. Preschools. I don't know about the preschool. That don't make no sense. <laughs> but the squash, the, the squash court actually does. If a part of their hmm. mission is to introduce alien <laughs> culture oh. and vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like we're executing some mental gymnastics. Yeah, maybe, to, uh, maybe make squash that is like the 24th century version of football or something. <laughs> well, you know, and it's entirely yeah. possible. It's just, you know, a versatile court, not necessarily. Right. They just call it out because <laughs> yeah. that's how it's being used at the time. Are, you, are we sure it's not on the holodeck? I, I don't know why all their recreational facilities wouldn't be on the holodeck. I mean, in Voyager, they established that holodeck power is completely separate from the rest of the ship's power and completely ignored. Yeah, yeah that didn't, <laughs> that doesn't make a whole lot of sense anyway. Yeah. The holodeck is another that, <laughs> plot. That's another thing that you think you know how it works, and then you go read the tech manual, and you're like, eh. So, like, in, in the tech manual, essentially, most things on the holodeck are actually replicated, right? Which mm. they, I, I actually like that model better because it means, like, Oh, if I sit in this chair, like the ship doesn't have to keep expending power to create a chair, right? Yeah. It, replicates it, it makes sense in the context of what we've seen as well. Right, right. And it's just sort of like, oh, I can just move. It, it is a real chair. It feels like a chair. I can interact with it. And then like when it goes out of frame, it gets subsumed back into the holodeck, uh, yeah. the replicator system. The spooky thing is the characters. As long as that's not what they're doing with the people. No, well, so it, that gets yeah, a little that, No, dark. it is. So what they do, how they say the people work is essentially they create literally they create meat puppets where it's like oh, it, no. it creates a, a humanoid character using <laughs> sort of like fake tissue and then oh, like no. microscopic tractor beams <laughs> oh, manipulate it which is funny because that's that's completely discounted by what we oh, see yeah, in oh Warriors. yeah no and, and tng right even tng they didn't with moriarty yeah. when he sticks his but hand out you do actually reference what is it where they reference the fact that the food on the holodeck is yeah, replicated that, you can actually right. eat it. Uh, that might be uh, with the uh, Moriarty, that same episode. Yeah, uh, but in in the whole holodeck runs on a separate system. That was right. all a caveat because in Voyager, there's no explanation for why they would ever use the holodeck. They're in a power crunch situation where every little uh, ounce of power you can get, every every little you know bit needs to be conserved. And you're running right. the holodeck? <laughs> so they told the story of, oh yeah, it's this completely incompatible system. You can't draw power from it. Okay, well then we might as well use right. it. And that doesn't make sense anyway, but whatever. I, there's some interesting, so there's some interesting things about how power works in Star Trek, where essentially there are, there's the EPS grid, which stands for Electroplasma System, I think. And and that's sort of like that you tap. So you, you have the warp core, right? That dilithium or, or deuterium antimatter collide using dilithium as a conduit to contain the reaction. And that creates plasma. The plasma is ferried throughout the ship using the EPS grid, which is essentially the, the arteries of the power system. And then the pla- the, the that's like super high energy plasma, right? Super dense um, with tons and tons of power. And so it goes through these like step down nodes where the power gets uh, like siphoned off and filtered down and and regularized into something that can charge your iPad, you know, like like the the but, but it's right. um it's sort of like the the difference between like the actual like energy that you get from the steam uh, turbines in the nuclear power plant versus you know what actually gets into your into your home. And so, like, there is some things there of, uh, and actually, in uh, TNG episode Disaster, the Enterprise is stranded. It hits a cosmic filament or something, and they um, don't have any power on the bridge. And so, Ro, you taps into the EPS grid to power a bridge console, and O'Brien yells at her because he's like, you know, if that thing blows up, you know, <laughs> right. there's so much power running through that that conduit that you know if it blows up we're all dead you know and, and so <laughs> this is why again right. yeah you think why <laughs> <it's installed. laughs> you know that's you know, it's interesting you you talk about all that uh you know as far as the eps conduits go um and you think about the cerrito ship design you know all the all the all the main juice is going to the engines before it gets to the rest of the ship is that a you know would that be a conscious choice if that was a you know, it's obviously having to go through the engines that sap most of the power 
I would think, first before it gets to other critical systems. That's got to be just into the engineering right, focus well, of the show. Right, well, that's something that's maybe. interesting about the pod is, like, all is all the fuel stored in that pod, right? Is the deuterium. Mm. Um, and deuterium is just water. It's uh, heavy water. And then, and then you have antimatter, and antimatter is whatever antimatter is. But it's stored in right. pods. But, yeah, I don't know... I guess yeah, it's, it goes. I mean, the 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 EPS uh, grid takes the they call it they literally call it warp plasma, but you know it's high energy plasma, whatever else it is, and then and then it right. plasma, you know it goes yeah. to the engines to power then the cells, and then the cells are designed to like take that power and use it to create a subspace field that you know lets you go to warp. But then it's distributed right. throughout the rest of the ship, and and I think filtered through those nodes that sort of step it down into things that power simple. Uh, appliances like lights and i'm actually i don't know where on the i would assume the replicators actually need kind of a direct feed from that warp plasma because there's such you know replicators transporters all those like magitech devices right need super high energy plasma to work but you know a light bulb a sliding door all that stuff that doesn't need warp plasma to function you got to just think they you're just getting the dregs of the energy up in the saucer section it's just uh, the engines are eating up most of the stuff well uh one, one more thing i wanted to point out um you know we're talking about the interior layout and what what they're what the California class designers are expending the space of the ship to actually contain on the ship. And so the Cerritos has a really nice like bar and that is not, and it's not space efficient at all. Um, And my only, the only explanation I can make for it is that it's part of the diplomatic mission. I think we mentioned before, like it's gotta, they've prioritized having this like Mm -hmm. really nice loungy space. And what's interesting is they also have a separate mess hall. If you recall, there's that episode where I can't remember the other answer's name. The other, the other lower decks bro is like chugging beer out of oh, like, yeah. straight out of repl- replicator, and that's that's happening in the mess hall. So they have at least two different like food consumption areas. Well, that mm-hmm. assumes that the lounge's primary purpose is food consumption. It's for, as opposed to like alcohol consumption or synthahol. I mean, it's it's a lounge. It's air for relaxing. And- yeah. But the, I mean, again, it's it's you're kind of it's like splitting hairs. But like they again, they somebody chose to make these two different areas on the ship for some reason. I don't know. Is it just me? Am I am I just talking crazy? Well, I I think you know you have. I think if you have, especially a ship like the Cerritos, that's always around it. He's talking crazy. <laughs> it's it true. makes it's sense to true. me. You would have. It makes sense to me. You would have several different places on the go for for people to go to for R and R. And and yeah, one might be more of a a bar, and another might be more of like this is the mess hall, right? Like essentially, if you're on a quote unquote real ship, you have the uh, enlisted mess where all the plebs right. eat, and then you have the officers' mess, right, where the the higher ranking people eat, and and so you could you could slice it that way. I don't think that's what they're going for here. I think they're just sort of this is the USO lounge, <laughs> and then the you know the other the other place is just sort of the actual yeah. mess hall where people you know eat dinner you know it makes sense like it you know in, in previous star trek like every single cor- set of quarters has a food replicator but i pulled up an, an image of the uh group bunks area and there are no replicators there so oh shit yeah. maybe it does make sense for them to, it's like they can't just like right. chug a milkshake <laughs> like canada troy style they've got to like go go down to the the mess hall area. So I guess it makes sense. Referencing the Defiant again, they had the same situation. They had a mess with the replicators in it, and then they had the bunk room, which just had bunks in it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Was there no replicator yeah. in, the, in the Defiant uh, quarters? Not that was shown. Okay. Well, maybe that makes sense. Yeah. I was, the reason why I call it up, you know, I, I wanted to talk about it is you look at this and you're thinking like, how many how many crew quarters could you fit in something the size of the lounge? You know, do we really need the lounge? And <laughs> That's that's the thing, though. You start having these conversations about space usage, and you realize that, okay, so let's say that we're going to switch to crew quarters, and that's going to eat up, say, you know, 10 square feet, right? It's 10 square feet times every member of the crew. And right. how big is that lounge? A few hundred square feet? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess the lounge actually looked like it was quite a bit larger than that, though. It's quite, They're both quite big spaces. But yeah, I think you're right. I think we need to know... Please, McMahon, if you're listening, we need to know exactly how many crew members are on the Cerritos. I don't Please think I need to know that. I, I prefer to have my 
Two tails nebulous, oh, so that okay. way nobody can nitpick them. Nope. Exact number, please. Well, if they ever do a lower decks, uh, if they ever do a lower deck manual, <laughs> tech manual, then yes. we'll get a get an idea. Cerritos has a crew of six thousand. Wow. What? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, so here's the thing, though, is like the you know, the Nimbus class aircraft carrier, which is like it's about a thousand feet long. So it's actually it's, has much less volume than the Enterprise D has a crew of 6,000 people. Um, Her crew complement doesn't make any sense. Uh, but yeah. isn't the Cerritos a fair bit smaller than the D? Yeah, a third the size or something, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, a third the length, right? Yeah, that's that's yeah, by, that's that's what king. Yeah, yeah, if yeah. I like volume, like a third the size, yeah. Please, McMahon. Mike, please, just tell me the number. There's <laughs> a crew complement of four. Everybody else is just hanging out. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> so many questions answered. Well, I, I did, that's all I had to talk about. Do you guys have anything else, Cerritos, or have we thoroughly exhausted everything there is to talk about regarding this ship? Um, I I, I think I want to shout out to the, the intro. Yes. Like the Lower Decks intro sequence where you see the Cerritos, like, almost like, Picks a fight with the Wait, Borg yeah. and then it runs away and then it you know gets <laughs> nursed on by an alien creature and I I think it's a great way to like introduce the ship really? as a character yes. I mean like that's something I feel really strong about obviously since I work on starships all day is uh and it's something that I try to imbue into the ships that we make for Star Trek Online is that the ships are just as much characters in the show as you know the actors the characters that the actors play. So, so I think, and I think they're, they're really aware of that in lower decks as well. And I actually think more than maybe some of the other new star Trek, I think the Cerritos actually gets to be a character in a way that uh, discovery or the lost Arna hasn't quite yet. And so, you know, like the spin around um, when they're, we're doing the homage to the infamous scene, the star Trek, the motion picture, right. Where you get all the beauty shots and as someone who appreciates starships, (laughs) that was, uh, like the joke was that it went on for so long, but I was I was loving every second I love of it. it. Yes, <laughs> you're totally right. Uh, that is something that I have noticed about, uh, especially Discovery. Like usually, it takes a little bit to get there, but eventually, like you said, the ship becomes a character, right? And you can see it yeah. in the way that the crew talk about the ship. You never really get that feeling with Discovery. It always feels like this is just something they're on, right? It's it's set. Right. It's not an actual living, breathing thing. Right. The closest might be like a spore drive, but yeah, you're right. They don't really, yeah. it's not, it's not the same. No. And, you know, I, part of that comes too from the relationship that the characters, the main characters have with it. And I think now that Burnham is the captain, I actually wonder if mm. that's going to change right now that she has the rest of the full responsibility on her shoulders of like the ship and its crew, like how, how we might see the discovery kind of evolve into a character because it now has a very different relationship to Burnham than it did before. That's actually a a good thought. I mean, I hope they do pursue something like that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see you next season. Well, Aaron, is there anything else or should you get us out of here? Yeah, I definitely need to get out of here. My uh, glass is uh, just about empty. So I think we're going to call it a day, but uh, we'll be back for more deep dives and an analysis of episodes as they air. Uh, tune in. In the meantime, you can catch us on Twitter uh, at Lower Dorks. Or if you want a more personal touch, you can reach out to Stavros on OnlyFans. Wow. See, now I have to do it is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining us today, Thomas. Yes, thank you, Thomas. Yeah, it was my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me. 